Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is Episode 4, State of Texas versus Celeste Beard Johnson. Tonight, we'll talk about the case against Celeste Beard Johnson, who was convicted in 2003 of capital murder for remuneration and injury to an elderly person as a result of the 1909 shooting and 2000 death of retired Texas media mogul Stephen Franklin Beard II. Beard's marriage to Celeste was marred by her outrageous spending and cruel treatment of her elderly husband, including substituting his vodka for Everclear and spiking his food with sedatives. We'll talk about the lives of Beard Johnson, her husband, and Tracy Tarleton, the vulnerable woman Celeste met in a mental hospital. Then we'll talk about the case against Beard Johnson and her unsuccessful post-conviction claims. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Glad to be back here on the air and uh, live doing a show. We had a little bit of a hiccup originally. We weren't even supposed to be on the air tonight. We were supposed to be on the air uh, last week. But unfortunately, Poland being what it is here in the state of Arkansas, I ended up with a sinus infection, and then actually last night I ended up in the ER. So, luckily we got everything. Oh my goodness! Well, good. I'm glad you're feeling better. Um, I know I was, and I want to apologize. I think I, I, we Wednesday, but I want to apologize again. I didn't mean to sound short in our communications last Tuesday when you said you needed to cancel. It's all good. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, you know, one thing I want to talk about real quickly, uh, first off, mm-hmm. uh, last Thursday, our office, because of the number of people, qualified for us to have our own COVID vaccination. Ooh. 
Awesome. So anyone employed by this law firm, which shall remain nameless because I don't want any crap at work, um, anybody employed by this law firm, if they want a vaccine, they can get a COVID vaccine. Um, medical personnel came to the office with the vaccines, uh, with the number of doses for people who expressed an interest in getting it. Um, mm-hmm. These vaccines were given. It was the Moderna vaccine. Um, I had a little soreness in my left arm, the upper arm. It kind of felt like an internal bruise, Mm -hmm. uh, which resolved by Saturday. Um, I had no ill effects. And um, I just want to say the vaccine, I know there are people that have vaccination as a general rule they're against or they don't trust it or whatever. But, um, you know, people who choose who want to go ahead and get vaccinated, let them get vaccinated. Do your research. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Don't try to discourage others from doing it. Don't post the horror stories of what – I know people have been vaccinated and had bad outcomes. Guess what? That happens with vaccinations. It happens with medications. It happens with medical treatments and medical interventions. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's the thing about, that's the thing about this. Uh, you know, it's one of those situations that, you know, actually my mother got the uh, second dose of her Moderna. I believe it was the second dose from the mm-hmm. uh, Veterans Administration down in Florida this past week. And she actually indicated that, you know, she did have, she was nauseated a little bit. But within 24 hours, just like they've been saying on the news, you know, everything seems to subside. Right. She is uh, doing well. And from what I've read, um, these vaccinations are not an inert form of the virus. They're basically, um, they're basically a, they trigger production in your body of a certain protein that is found on the surface of the virus that will give you some immunity Absolutely. to the uh, virus. You know, I think the only one that actually contains the virus that is out on the uh, ability to get is um, the Johnson & Johnson. So definitely mm-hmm. uh, something to keep your eye on there as well. Right. So, and, you know, that, that may be that, that result nausea, uh, fatigue, that may be kind of your body's reaction exactly. to the signal exactly. I mean, to, to produce this protein. I don't do it often, um, but anytime I get the uh, flu shot, I end up getting, you know, a little bit under the weather for like a couple hours. But other than right. that, it's no problem, and I have a feeling that's what this is going to end up being like. Is like the flu shot, where you you get a little sick, but you know you bounce back pretty quick. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Lisa, before we get into the case, I know I haven't gotten to pay too much attention to it, but I do see it is getting pretty. Uh, from it's getting the start to finish treatment. Uh, have you been able to sit down and watch any of the uh, Chauvin trial yet? I've watched snippets of testimony. Have you um, learned anything? 
Well, I I know from Court TV and Vinny Politan, um, at one point they were talking, and I believe that some of the charges under Minnesota law, I think that the the uh, state is going to have a difficult time convicting Chauvin because they can't prove intent to cause George Floyd's death. Well, and of course, there's also there's also there's a dispute as to his cause of death well, because it appears in some of the videos. Wait, 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 wait! It appears in some of the videos that he was ingesting drugs as police were making an initial contact with him, and he did that once before. Well, that's certainly something to uh, that we'll keep our eye on as far as that goes. But um, one thing, you know, I've always seen is, as the biggest problem with this, which is kind of why I'm glad they used, and I'm going to use one uh, term that we use here kind of in a negative light most of the time, but the spaghetti theory, they threw a bunch of charges at him. And, you know, I don't think most of them are going to stick, obviously. I right. don't think they're going to get second-degree murder. I think third-degree is possible. I'm not sure if intent is needed for third-degree, but um, but I think I think that's the difference between second and third. But uh, they threw, I think, manslaughter at them as well. So yeah. I, I have a feeling something's going to stick. And, I mean, it's you know, I, I, I know Chauvin's action of putting his – knee on George Floyd's neck or or shoulders and neck for the period of time was reckless, was unreasonable, but I think it also may be, in the, and, and this a lot of this is going to hinge on whether Chauvin is going to be able to testify or whether the risks are too great to put him on the stand. You know, if I part would, of the reason was the, was the bystanders chiming in and talking and talking to George Floyd and talking to the cops and, you know, imploring the cops, that could have contributed to Chauvin's kind of staying put and leaving George Floyd and everybody else staying where they were and not trying to move. Now, another thing, most of the time with police officers, um, there's passive resistance, which looking at the video, that is kind of what George Floyd was doing. He was tightening up so they couldn't put him in the truck. Uh-huh. And that is, he wasn't actively resisting, but he was passively resisting. Mm-hmm. He was making it very difficult. And as you saw, I think he was put in one side and he had to come right out the other side. Because he and immediately like said, started it's acting up. It's definitely going to be interesting because the prosecute the prosecution's going to throw out you know the popular the popular side and the uh, the defense is obviously going to throw out the side that makes them look So it'll but, be interesting to see what side the jury comes on. And that's another problem that I have. Okay. People protesting outside the courthouse, if it is, if it were wrong, or if it would be wrong if George Floyd was on trial for killing one of those police officers, say things went a different way. 
and George Floyd was well, armed I mean, with a gun, and he pulled that gun out and shot one of the police officers. I don't think that public protesting outside the courthouse should have influenced his trial, and I think it's wrong for public protests to remain outside the courthouse to try to influence the outcome of, of Derek Chauvin's trial. Well, I mean, it's it's one thing though that you do have to say in in this type of trial, you're probably not going to be able to escape that, just because any sort of high profile trial that gets the beginning to end coverage as what we're getting here. Uh, I remember Casey had people camping out. I'm pretty sure. But OJ Michael, had you're you're no no wait, Michael, Michael, you're talking about something completely different. People following a case closely. But there are people outside that courthouse protesting to try to influence the outcome, to try to ensure that Derek Chauvin is convicted of the top count. Mm -hmm. And whether that's by intimidating witnesses, intimidating the jurors, intimidating the court personnel, intimidating the defense attorneys, that's what I'm saying. That's what is wrong. Just like people should not have been intimidating or trying to intimidate Jody Arias' witnesses, although I don't quite believe that that really happened, uh, or her attorneys. To um, be fair, is it, is it a situation that is on these protesters that are assembling, or is it on a situation where they probably shouldn't be allowed within a certain radius of the courthouse, and that's a failure upon, uh, I guess it would be the city, to... Uh, not allow them that close. I agree that the city should not allow them that close, that they should keep a buffer zone between the courthouse and protesters. Right. Like I said, it would be, because it would be wrong if police officers from around the state of Minnesota came and protested and tried to influence the jury or influence the proceedings against George Floyd if things had been different. Absolutely. And, I mean, let's be honest here. In all fairness, and I think me and you both, you know, me and you land on different sides of this uh, trial. But with that being said, I, I definitely see your point because unless I'm mistaken, just my thought that just occurred to me, if a judge wanted to, he could declare a mistrial just based upon that, correct? So they could be doing more damage than good. Well, it, it would depend. First of all, the problem would have to be brought to the judge's attention. So mm-hmm. a juror would have to come forward and say, I was going to my car in the parking lot and I was accosted by a group of people and they told me I had to convict Derek Chauvin and if I don't, things are going to go badly for me and I'm afraid and I want off the jury. Absolutely. And the judge may just let jurors out until he runs out of jurors and then he has to declare a mistrial. But sometimes people don't report things like that. You know, and I don't, I'm not saying that it's gone there or gotten that far. It's an example um, right, absolutely. And, you know, and sometimes if the jury says, uh, you know, it happened, but it didn't influence me or affect me or bother me, then, you know, the judge lets them stay. 
Well, I mean, even if you look at it from a certain perspective, you could even say that they're giving him ammunition for his, uh, you know, should he be convicted for his uh, for his appeal process as well. Uh, right? And unless it goes on the record that it was police officers trying to influence a juror not to convict, because okay. that was something that happened in the West Memphis Three case. There were mm-hmm. allegations of. Uh, of uh, let's say like hang up calls or some kind of calls to a juror and then it turned out that it was somebody associated or affiliated with Eccles that was doing it oh okay so um, it's been a long time but you know Eccles talked about that oh the you know this juror was being forced and then it turns out on the record that whoever it was was someone affiliated with Eccles. And mm-hmm. that the juror was being told not to convict. Okay. So, all right. Well, let's go. Um, let's go ahead and get, uh, get started on Celeste Beard Johnson, Texas versus Celeste Let's Beard hop Johnson. in. Uh, first of all, uh, the victim, Stephen Franklin Beard II or Stephen Franklin Beard Jr., he's appeared in different sources in, you know, with either or name. Uh, he was born November 27, 1924, and uh, he was born to a poor family in Dallas, Texas. He went to school, began working in radio and advertising, and basically worked his way up and became a self-made man. Uh, He was married. Yeah. Well, I think he eventually was able to. He was able to invest in ownership of a station or several stations, Uh radio stations, television stations. And so he was able to make good investments and, and build his his uh, portfolio, his I guess you want to say. Yeah. Uh, he was married to Elise Helen Adams, and they had three children, Stephen III, Becky, and Paul, uh, who were all born between 1949 and 1953. He was a co-owner of one of the first Fox affiliate stations in Dallas, Texas. Oh, wow. And it was the sale of that station that actually basically set him up for retirement. It was a very lucrative deal for him. So that's what made him a millionaire. That's what made him, yeah. That's what what put him over the the top. Okay. he moved to Austin, Texas. His wife, Elise, unfortunately had cancer, and she was ill for some time, and then she died. And mm-hmm. it was after her death, or maybe even a little bit before her death, that he met Celeste Johnson, Martinez, Bratcher, God only knows how many other names the woman had. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> At the Austin Country Club. Celeste Johnson is her maiden name. 
She was adopted. Uh, she grew up in California. She claims that her adoptive father abused her sexually, but mm-hmm. she is a manipulative liar. And so I don't know how much weight you believe I would give to those allegations because okay. everybody abused Celeste. Her first husband abused her. Stephen Beard abused her. Every husband abused her. Somebody abused her all the time. Um, now, I see that she did meet her first mother eventually, and she said something to the – the mom told her that she wasn't her mother. She was just her incubator. Correct. Kind of and a, I uh, think that – I Yeah, and I think that actually uh, Nancy Hall, who is kind of a collaborator and who has run websites and, and things like that, I believe mm-hmm. that that is her birth mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there was a a news magazine program where Celeste said something incredibly manipulative to her mother in a phone call that was being filmed. Um, and I, I thought, you know, if I were this lady who's spent, my money trying to help this woman get out of the mess she got herself into, I would end it now after that statement because it was incredibly manipulative statement. And I can't remember exactly what it was. And I tried to find the news magazine program that it was on, but this was way back in 2005, 2006, right after Celeste was convicted right after her direct appeal. Mm-hmm. So um, I was never able to find it to get the exact statement, but it was incredibly, like I said. And if I had been the woman, I would have been horribly insulted and would have told Celeste right then and there, F you, goodbye. Don't call me again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. her, uh, Celeste's first husband was a guy by the name of Craig Bratcher. Uh, her mm-hmm. daughter's twins, Christina and Jennifer, were born. She left Bratcher, of course, like I said, she claims he abused her. Right, and I want to get um, into that real quick. Um, it says he committed suicide in 96. Has anyone after Celeste, you know, after all this happened, has anyone looked into Celeste and reopened that and made sure this dude off himself? Well, I think that at the time this happened, um, I think at the time this happened, she was married to um, Stephen Beard, and she was actually engaged in a custody battle with Bratcher. Uh And I believe that Stephen Beard's money and lawyers had been able to successfully win that for her. Okay. So he may have committed suicide because he lost the custody battle. Okay. okay. Um, I, so but I don't think she had anything to gain from Craig Bratcher's death. Okay. If that's okay. where you're going. So, well, no, uh, you know, I think he was worth absolutely nothing to her. 
And one thing about Celeste is... But if somebody's abusive, you know, you see every time a lot that people whose spouses have been abusive, that they end up killing them later on. She had... He had been out of her life. He had been out of her life for years. She had got. She had left him. Okay. And again, I don't. Be- I. I don't believe. I take that everything Celeste says with a grain of salt because she is. Uh, she is a. Uh, she's a manipulative person. You wouldn't believe her if her tongue came notarized. Exactly. Uh, you know, I it, I would want an independent witness corroborating whatever she's telling me. Right. Okay. So, um, uh, now Nancy Hall, it appears, the woman I was referring to is her adoptive mother, not her birth mother. Okay. I thought for some reason I was thinking that she had re- hooked up with her birth father, okay. her birth mother, rather, and had... Well, um, I think she only met her once, yeah. Yeah. So I, that was a mistake. Um, yeah. But anyway, so she left him. Uh, she had two additional marriages, one of which was to a guy by the name of Jimmy Martinez. Do we know uh, she claims he was abusive as well, but she... After she was married to Stephen Beard, she started carrying on an affair with Jimmy Martinez. Okay. So I guess he wasn't that abusive. Right. So while she was married to Beard, she she went back with her ex-husband and started screwing around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and apparently Bratcher was awarded custody of Christina and Jennifer. Really? Okay. So, um, that means second and third marriages when she started working at the Austin Country Club and met Steve Beard, she did not have custody of her daughters and she wanted that back. Right. So, um, she met Steve and Beard um, she tells these stories about him, and it's really horrible because, you know, she gives this impression that he was a, cr- a cranky old man, that everybody at the country club was afraid of him except her, that, um, you know, she was very fond of him. She wanted somebody to take care of her. He wanted somebody to take care of. And so they both agreed on the terms of their marriage and, um, you know, so this but, wasn't even like a marriage of love. This was just straight up sugar daddy situation. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know because Stephen Beard is not here, but he was from an older generation. And, you know, one of the things when they were initially married, her spending caused issues with Stephen Beard. Because uh-huh. he realized at the rate Celeste was spending, he wasn't going to have this money. Right. And, you know, she could that she could conceivably spend all of it before he died. Uh-huh. And so there was talk at one point of a divorce, but he was from an older generation. Uh-huh. You did just throw the marriage away. You worked and you fixed it. 
And I think the fix was a marital trust where he would give her $500,000 and that was all she would get. If they divorced, that's it. She got her $500,000 and they're done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Celeste, too, whenever there were issues caused by her spending, Celeste, manipulative woman that she is, she threatens to kill herself. Of course. Well, and and now, she now was I drinking. She like was abusing that. drugs. She was having affairs. You know, she wasn't Lisa, happy. I don't, I don't want to say it like that because apparently there was a history. Apparently... During puberty, uh, she apparently tried to commit suicide as well. So I don't. Want well, to that's what she again, Michael. Michael, that's those are her self-serving statements. Uh huh. Those are the stories that she tells people to get sympathy from them. Uh huh. She, to my knowledge, has never produced a medical record or a psychiatric record or a psychiatric report that documents any history of suicidal ideation or suicide attempts as an adolescent. Okay. Um, This isn't coming from her, you know, this isn't something she doesn't talk about, but her mother tells people. This isn't Mm -hmm. something that's coming from her best friend in high school. These are Celeste's self-serving statements. Oh, my God, I was so unhappy as a kid that I tried to kill myself twice. Right. And she's one of those detailed liars like Casey Anthony. She could tell you a whole story about how she tried to kill herself, but did it ever really happen? That's the question. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so that breakdown put uh, Celeste ended up checking herself into a an Austin psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have Tracy Tarleton. Tracy, early life, her father was an attorney, I believe, a quite well known attorney in Fort Worth. She. Um, She's about my age. She graduated in 1986 from Texas A&M with a degree in biology. So she's very intelligent, uh, science and math oriented. She worked for the government for some time. Mm -hmm. But I sense that her emotional and mental problems, which led to alcohol and substance abuse issues, and underlying psychiatric issues resulted in her not working for the government anymore, and she was working at an Austin bookstore. But she was abusing drugs and alcohol. She uh, had been diagnosed as bipolar. She probably wasn't taking her medications. She was self-medicating with alcohol and other drugs. And she ended up being committed to the same hospital where Celeste was and met Celeste. Um, They began an affair in the hospital. Okay. Uh, It caused issues while they were both in the hospital. And Celeste began setting up her husband. 
So she began telling Tracy about what a horrible man he was, how he abused her, how he tore her down, how he made her suicidal. Um, and then when they got out of the hospital, Tracy was a frequent visitor at the house in Austin at Toro Canyon. Mm-hmm. And while she was there, she witnessed some of Celeste's cruel treatment of Stephen, which was witnessed by others as well. Right. Um, Celeste often said, I wish he would just die. Because Damn. divorced, she gets that $500,000 and she gets nothing else. But if he dies, she is heir to his estate. Yeah. Along with his, with his three wow. children. And another thing that she did when she was married, she isolated Stephen from his three children from his first marriage. Uh-huh. Um, and if you listen to her interviews, you know, now, his kids hated him, her kids hated him. Mm-hmm. I wanted him to have a relationship with his kids. I wanted him to have a re- relationship with mine. But they all hated him. Um, okay. So... uh And that's kind of that's typical in an abusive relationship, whether there's physical or just emotional mental abuse, is you isolate mm-hmm. the person from other people in their lives. Right. Um, so uh, another thing that she would do, you know, she claims about Stephen drinking too much and being a drunk. But Celeste would substitute vodka for with Everclear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in her self-serving statements in her interviews, she said, oh, Stephen would have never fallen for that. Well, if you wait till Stephen's had a couple of drinks and then you start substituting his vodka with Everclear, he ain't going to notice. Right, absolutely not. Right, absolutely not. Uh, she was poisoning his food. Uh, there was a, a there was like a book that actually taught you how to make botulism, which is a is a bacteria, I believe. Uh, but she was also mm-hmm. drugging his food. She would mm-hmm. grind grind up sedatives and put them in his food. Okay. Um, and she would do that so that he would pass out and she could leave and go see Martinez or Tracy. And then mm-hmm. she was continuing mm-hmm. her outrageous spending. And, yes, Stephen Beard was was approving those expenditures. He didn't have much choice because you would throw a fit if you didn't. You would threaten to kill yourself if you didn't. And frankly, he probably just didn't want the aggravation. But, you know, he was he was not unaware that you were going to be spending all of his money. And he could have been threatening Celeste at that point with, um, you know, putting an end to her spending. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, that may be something that nobody witnessed, but that's why. And she would tell Tracy, you know, I love you so much. I want to be with you, but Stephen is standing in our way. 
Oh, of course. And we have oh, to get rid of Stephen. Stephen has to go. We'll we'll never be you know we'll never be able to be together. And her relationship with Tracy was witnessed by her daughters and several people. Like I said, it caused a problem at the mental hospital. She threw a party for Tracy where several people saw her sitting on Tracy's lap and them kissing. She sent Tracy a card that was basically, you're the love of my life. But it was all manipulation. It wasn't real, you know. Right, Um, right. So between October 1st, 1999 to October 2nd, 1999, of course, Tracy's been to that house multiple times because she's been there to visit Celeste. She's been there for a party. She's been there, you know, so she is pretty much familiar with the lay of the land. And on any one of those visits, Celeste could have taken her on a walkthrough to say, okay, this is how we do it. Um, The front gate had been removed for construction work. The alarm was off. I mean, they lived in this palatial house in a very, very, very up upper scale area in Austin. I think it's Westlake, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, which is where Drew Brees may have been from. Okay. Okay. Um, and um, so, yeah, because he's from Austin. And um, Celeste sent her one daughter, Jennifer, and Jennifer's boyfriend to their lake house to spend the night. She was sleeping in her daughter Christina's room. Um, Tracy Tarleton came to the house and was able to enter the bedroom where Stephen Beard was sleeping. This was after midnight, wee hours of the morning. She shot Stephen once with a shotgun and then left. Uh Stephen awakes. His um, wound is very painful, um, very serious. He calls 911 and he thinks his stomach has exploded. Okay. But he was able to call 911 and he was able to summon help. Um. And initially when police and first responders got there, they thought he'd had a surgery and that something had gone wrong with the incision or that he'd had a hernia and the hernia broke through. Okay. And at one point as the first responders are arriving, Christina sees Celeste peering out the door of her room. Kind of like, you know, Oh, do do I go yet? Do I wait? You know, is it time? And the police break a window and enter. They or they break the glass in the door of Stephen's room to enter, because apparently Tracy locked the door behind her, and nobody's answering the front door, and nobody's responding to their efforts to notify somebody in the house. So a police officer basically breaks the glass door and comes into the bedroom that way. Um, Of course, Mm -hmm. Celeste, when she goes to the bedroom and sees people tending to Stephen, she screams, don't let him die, don't let him die. But that was all an act. It's not real. It's not legitimate. 
And so, you know, she acts very concerned. She acts as a concerned spouse would. So freaking what? That doesn't prove her innocence. Right. Um, right. So they take Stephen away. He was actually airlifted to the hospital. Um, when they begin their investigation, immediately somebody finds a shotgun shell on the floor of Stephen's room. Mm-hmm. So they realize this was not a medical condition. His injury was the result of a shotgun wound. Mm-hmm. Um, Celeste refused to cooperate with investigators. She wouldn't tell investigators anything about anything. She never mentioned Tracy's name to police. She even took steps to make sure that nobody else mentioned it. She told her daughters and their boyfriends not to mention Tracy to police. Um, She refused to allow police to speak to Stephen. There was a sign posted outside Stephen's door in the hospital that said police were not allowed in without Celeste and an attorney present. So police, in four months between the shooting and Stephen's death, they never got a chance to even talk to Stephen Beard. Okay. about what okay. happened to him. Um, I think Celeste's efforts to keep Tracy's name out of the investigation for one or another of the boyfriends or maybe one of her daughters, it kind of set off alarm bells. So police were given Tracy's name very early in the, vest- in the investigation. And when they talked to Tracy, um, Tracy who at that point I think believed that Celeste had cleaned the crime scene after Tracy left the house. Uh, Celeste talked to, I mean, Tracy talked to the police and she cooperated with the police and she gave him her shotgun, which has her name engraved on it because it was a gift from her father. And what she doesn't realize is they have a shotgun shell. And so they're able to link her right. immediately right. to the shooting because of that shotgun shell. Damn, Tracy, now, come on. One of the important things to think about because of, of what becomes Celeste's defense at trial and in the ensuing decades since, that Tracy mm-hmm. was a lesbian woman who would convert married women into lesbian relationships. With Tracy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that Tracy was obsessed with Celeste, that Celeste did not return Tracy's affections, that Celeste was just Tracy's friend and nothing more, and never wanted anything more than that. Um, when Tracy is arrested and charged with elderly to an injury person, Celeste Beard never goes to police and says, "Oh my God, I can't believe this. She was obsessed with me." She was always kissing on me, and I always told her, I can only be your friend. Um, I don't want to be your girlfriend. I don't, I'm not into, I'm not into girls. I'm I'm not a lesbian. I don't, I've never done it, and I'm never going to do it. She never tells police any of those things. Um, Steven spent a long time in the hospital, and then he went to a rehab hospital. And he did briefly recover so that he could be sent home. 
But unfortunately, when he was sent home, Celeste refused to have home health come in to assist take care of Stephen. And this is important because Stephen had a very serious wound to his abdomen and his intestines. And I believe he had a wound that could not be closed. Hmm. And so he really needed extensive nursing care and they had the resources for said nursing care but Celeste refused it right why you ask because without that kind of care Stephen would be more susceptible to infection Mm -hmm. and within a few weeks of his release from the rehab hospital he was battling an infection and back in the hospital and readmitted. And he ultimately on January 22nd, 2000 died of an infection as a result of the shotgun wounds. After that, Tracy's charges were upgraded to capital murder because I think police suspected Celeste But they didn't have any evidence, and Tracy wasn't talking. Tracy was protecting Celeste. I think Tracy was also expecting an attorney from Celeste and and help. And and Celeste was probably promising all those things, but not delivering. Mm -hmm. And um, many, several witnesses described Celeste as absolutely giddy at the funeral. Of course, when people ask Celeste about that now. She says, I wasn't giddy. That was my daughter's because they were going to inherit all that money because they were setting me up. Um, and Tracy ended her, I mean, uh, Celeste ended her relationship with Tracy. And I think it was kind of mutual because I think deep down Tracy was starting to see What was going on? Yeah, I I really do. Um, And then about July of 2000, Celeste met a guy by the name of Cole Johnson. He was some kind of bartender, and she married Mm -hmm. him, and they went on their honeymoon in Aspen. Because now Celeste inherits Boku money and starts spending even more money. And it was after Celeste's marriage to Cole Johnson that Tracy finally got a clue and decided not to go down for Stephen's murder by herself. So she talked Uh to police and she agreed to a plea deal in exchange for testimony against Celeste. Celeste was arrested and charged. She was indicted for capital murder for remuneration and injury to an elderly person. The indictment was eventually amended when Celeste attempted to have it dismissed um, to say that the remuneration was the inheritance from Stephen Beard's estate, um, which is a perfectly 
acceptable theory on behalf of the state. Right. Um, the prosecution had Tracy's testimony because Celeste made multiple direct statements to Tracy about Stephen Beard. Tracy witnessed some of the treatment of Stephen Beard by Celeste. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Tracy also testified under oath that the plan was, first of all, that Celeste promised that she would clean up any evidence before calling 911. And Celeste also told Tracy that she was going to wait for Stephen to die before she called 911. Now, the way the cards fell, Stephen Beard was able to call 911 for himself. But had it been up to Celeste, she would have waited until Stephen Beard died. Right, and absolutely. If, she to I bet you if her daughter Christina hadn't been in the house, she would have gone to that bedroom and she would have prevented Stephen from calling for help, and she would have probably tormented him until the moment he died. Yeah. Just based on the things that I've read about her, that is, you know, that's the kind of person that she is. Um, And a lot of those things are corroborated. Christina and Jennifer lived in the home. They witnessed things. Um... Other people witnessed and and heard statements from Celeste, not just Tracy, not just her daughter. Um, Celeste also hired someone or or had offered to hire a friend of hers to find a hitman to kill Tracy once Tracy had decided to talk when Celeste got out on bail. And Celeste and this friend even took a trip to New Orleans and lived it up and had a good old time creating an alibi for both of them on the weekend that Tracy was supposed to be killed. Okay. So the defense at trial was basically, uh, and, and that, that allegation that she hired someone is based on a statement that she made in anger on a recorded phone call to one of her daughters. Ah, okay. Um, and you know, if you if you can find on YouTube, they have a recording somewhere of that phone call. And I mean, it is pretty horrible because the daughter is saying something, and Celeste is like just tearing into her, and and just horrible. A mother should never talk to a child in the way Celeste talked to her daughter. Ever. And that was a common occurrence because Celeste is manipulative. And when she can't sweet talk you, she will berate you and she will bully you if sweet talking doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so Celeste's basic defense was Tracy's crazy. Tracy was obsessed with Celeste. Christina and Jennifer were lying to get the money. All the witnesses against Celeste are lying. Um to get the money, uh, to help Jennifer and Christina get the money. They also disputed Stephen's cause of death. They claimed the infection was not related to the shotgun wound. Um, Stephen was old. He was in his 70s. He, was, he wasn't in good health. He had COPD, he had heart problems, whatever. But 
the cascade effect of the shotgun wound and the infection, and, and his cause of death was definitely infection. Okay. All of that was related to the shotgun wound. And so, the, but they brought in their own medical examiner to dispute the state medical examiner. Um, Celeste was found guilty on both counts, and I, I moved verdict over too far on the outline. Sorry about that. She was found guilty yeah. on both counts, and she was uh, sentenced to two life sentences. But in Texas, uh, in 1999, there was no such thing as life without parole, which means okay. so that Celeste only had to serve 39 years of her life sentences, and then she becomes eligible for parole in April on April 1st, 2042. She was born in 1963. That would make her. She's a year older than I am. Um, that'll make her in her 70s or 80s. Well, I wouldn't make you call. I'm not good at math. Yeah, who, who knows, you know. We're, but, yeah, we're, she'll, we're she'll be. We're around until 2042 at least. <sighs> yeah, I'm going to have to work till then if I do. <laughs> How many seasons would that be Lisa by the time 2042 rolls around? Oh, my Lord. Um, a lot, because we're only in four. <laughs> right. I can't believe we're already in four. Yeah, I know. Pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's eligible for parole on April 1st, 2042. And I certainly hope that the parole board says, you're granted, April Fool. <laughs> that would be awesome. So on direct appeal, uh, Celeste appealed the court, to the trial court overruling her motion to quash the original indictment, permitting the state to amend the indictment and refusing to quash the amended indictment, which the uh appellate court it, it it was because this was a life sentence not a death sentence the case went to the appellate district the intermediary appellate court rather than the court of criminal appeals in texas okay um the uh basically the the appellate court found that her claims related to that error uh had no merit Okay. She alleged that the um, the trial court admitted irrelevant evidence, and I should which, have that's opened. The, which that's the, that's the first time I've ever seen something like that. Um, I'm assuming that didn't go well for. No, it was also denied. Um, and I can't remember what it was. I should have bad. I should have put it in parentheses. I know, bad. Um, and then threatening a defense witness and refusing to admit the witness's prior consistent statement. Now, this one was interesting. Apparently, 
An inmate contacted Celeste and said, I was incarcerated at Tracy Tarleton, and Tracy told me that she's going to lie on you. Oh, God, okay. And the judge, when the witness was brought to court, the judge apparently did not think that the witness's statements were credible and the judge perhaps thought that the witness might be just trying to get some attention. Uh-huh. And so the the judge basically made sure the witness understood that if she was not telling the truth in her testimony, that she understood what perjury was. Um, and I believe that it was actually Dick DeGarren who ended up not having that witness testify. The witness okay. testified, but there was, uh, I think DeGarren kind of limited the, the, the testimony or the questioning. Okay. Um, and he wanted to admit a prior consistent statement made by the witness, but I think it was that statement that kind of triggered the judge's uh, belief that this was hinky. Now, interestingly enough, fast forward a few years, and a second witness comes forward to Celeste saying the exact same thing. Um, so... And contrary to what uh, people believe, if you have someone testifying at a criminal trial against the defendant and somebody else says, I was in jail with this person and that, that witness told me they are going to lie, that testimony is not automatically admissible as impeachment. Okay. Okay. And so the judge was kind of giving DeGarren a little bit more latitude because I don't think he asked Tracy Tarleton, did you make a statement to so-and-so? Were you incarcerated with so-and-so? Or any of the, and that's, those, that's one of the things you have to do is you have to get the witness that you want to impeach with this statement and you have to say, did you, were you here? Did you make this statement to so-and-so? And if they deny making the statement, that's when so-and-so can testify. But there's going to be limitations to the testimony. Um, so, yeah. And then they also, they allege that her, Celeste's right to confront the witnesses against her was limited, um, but the court found no merit to that because the the circumstances, again, were the court made valid determinations as to the relevancy or admissibility of certain evidence. That's the that's the trial court's job. And I am going to continue trying to find us a criminal court judge to speak to us about 
okay. the role of a, of the judge during the criminal trial because I see that misrepresented a lot on social media in different cases. Um, they also uh, complained about the admission of evidence in evidence of a deposition that was given by Celeste Beard in a civil case. Mm-hmm. It was apparently mm-hmm. prior to her arrest, there was a, state, a civil case filed by, I believe it was the bank or the trust. Or maybe it was a dispute over the estate because Celeste had had somehow maneuvered herself into the, the key position in the estate and other heirs were challenging her spending. Mm-hmm. But anyway, at mm-hmm. any rate, um, basically, she was a defendant. Her testimony in a deposition is admissible. It's not hearsay. Because it's her testimony. Right. Right. And then she finally complained about um, they admitted summaries of telephone records that were prepared by the state. Basically, the state did spreadsheets showing various calls among the cell phones and the the landlines. And she complained because, like the landlines, they didn't have the actual telephone records. But they did have the cell phone records that showed calls to landline numbers. And they knew who the phone numbers belonged to. So none of her six issues were found to have any merit. Uh, In state post-conviction, she filed in state post-conviction, probably raised these issues that she raised at trial. Um, I don't know what other issues she may have raised, although she probably had Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, constitutional violations, revolving around these different issues that she raised on direct appeal. Uh, Relief was Mm -hmm. denied. Mm -hmm. And then, weirdly enough, this was in 2008. And this is when federal courts were doing mandatory electronic filing. And I believe the Western District of Texas was doing mandatory federal filing because in 2005, prior to Hurricane Katrina, the Western District of Tennessee, where I was working at the time, they had instituted manual electronic filing. We had to get – the attorneys had to get their you know, bar numbers and their login and password credentials. Uh, set up by the federal court. We had somebody from the, the federal court IT department come and go through, you know, training, showing us what the screens were going to look like and how to, you know, how to do the different functions that you have to do. You navigate you them and choose them civil or criminal. You find your case number. You choose the category of documents. You have to upload your documents telling us how to do the, how to create the electronic document to file. All those things were done to institute mandatory electronic filing. And I believe by 2006, if you had a state bar number, 
and you didn't have a PACER login credentials, you were encouraged by the court to go ahead and get those because I don't I think the only people that they took paper filings from at that point were pro se non attorney filers. Okay. Okay. Um so I don't understand how Dick Guerin could have been late because what he did is he read on an advance sheet that her release had been denied. He put together a federal habeas, writ of habeas corpus. And then he put that in the mail to the Western District of Texas from Houston. Hmm. And it arrived four days late. So he basically filed her federal habeas corpus writ late. I read the I read the you know appellate document. I mean the the district court brief and the district court opinion, and I don't understand the timeline of when her federal habeas appeal was due. It doesn't mm-hmm. really seem that equitable to me that she had literally one day after her state post-conviction claim was denied. And I don't get, and I'll say that, I don't get how the math on that works. And that's probably mm. one of the many concerns about EDPA. We're going to be talking to a county district attorney. You and I talked about this before we went on air, and I'm not going to I'm not going to go into detail at this time. But when we talked to that federal district attorney, because he was also a criminal defense attorney, right? I think I might want to ask him, but he would be like with California law. But I'm sure EDPA is federal law. So hopefully Uh he's familiar enough with Uh it to try and explain. Because I don't quite understand how she had literally the day after her her federal habeas writ, the last day to file, was the day after her state writ was denied. Right. And I don't understand how that works. Okay. Unless she lost time between her direct appeal and the filing of her state writ. And that could be what, what led if she had her direct appeal denied and then within a week filed her fed, her state writ, then she might've had longer after her state writ was denied. Cause it may okay. be one year after direct appeal and that's it. Hmm. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works. So, um, but we'll talk to him about that. So it okay. ended up, uh, because of the late filing, her federal writ of habeas corpus was d- dismissed. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal denied 
uh, a certificate of appealability on the issue. So they didn't weigh in at all on whether or not she should have gotten those four days. Right. But this is what I don't understand. Like I said, I don't understand why Dick DeGaran did not electronically file her writ because he could have electronically filed it that day that her fed, her state post-conviction writ was denied. And then we wouldn't be having this conversation about her federal writ. True. True. So, um, so yeah, as, as we talked a little earlier, alluded to, um, this case has received a lot of coverage. And it's funny, Celeste is not happy with the coverage because she said every time somebody covers it, they vilify me. Well, it's like, because you're the villain, baby. Right. <laughs> That's why you get vilified. Um, and I think it's easier to believe that you're the one lying about things rather than believing that you're the only one telling the truth. And that's basically her position. Only she and her witnesses are telling the truth. All the witnesses for the state are lying. Um, and the show's been covered on Snapped, American Justice, Deadly Women, 2020, uh, Dominic Dunn, the late Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice, uh, the show Reasonable Doubt, which is uh, Chris Anderson, former Birmingham homicide investigator, uh, who had appeared on First 48, and uh, mm-hmm. a criminal defense attorney the first season, I can't remember who it was, the second season, or the season this was, um, I can't remember her name. Bless her little heart, I can't remember her name. Yeah. <laughs> it happened. And, uh, but it was an interesting episode, although I, I've watched the show, I like the show, but sometimes the points that, the, that they, they look at don't make okay. a lot of sense to me. Okay. Okay. Because one of the things they looked at was whether Celeste would have heard um, would have heard Stephen being shot when she was in a different wing of the house, and it's like if she did or, or she could or she couldn't doesn't make a lot of doesn't make much yeah. difference between. Her innocence and guilt. If you right. say she couldn't have heard it, only if the um, only if the prosecution said she could have or should have, would it really be an issue? And even then, it's not that right. big a deal. Uh, the the attorney is defense attorney Fatima Silva. And I believe she was a New York City criminal defense attorney. Uh, okay. And if you can find that, I think it's available on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. It's a really, it's a pretty good episode. Um, so, and then, of course, Vengeance Killer Millionaires, which I need to find 
on HLN um, because I didn't see it. And there was another show that I couldn't find the title of that I recently watched. Um, and uh, Pardon? The one we were talking about right before we came on the air? No, no, this was a newer show. I was talking about one I couldn't uh, find. I was going to say the one I saw, the newest one I saw was uh, Fatal Fortune. So that was Vengeance. That, yeah, that was Vengeance Killer Millionaires. Yeah. That might be the one I watched now that you mention it. Um. So in 2010, Stephen Beard III and his um, Stephen Beard III, Stephen's oldest son, and Becky Beard both passed away. I believe Becky died in October, and Stephen III died in November. Okay. Um, our condolences to the Beard family. Tracy was paroled in 2011. Uh, she was sentenced, I believe, 20 years. She served 10, and she was released. Uh, Celeste Beard and her mother tried to get people to oppose Tracy's parole. But Tracy has admitted to what she did. She has taken responsibility for what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe her intelligence and perhaps the pressures and the, you know, she has a chemical imbalance because she's bipolar. She's been diagnosed with bipolar. Um, But I think that and her intelligence and led to her emotional problems, her mental problems, her substance and alcohol abuse. Um, And she was a vulnerable woman who was manipulated by by Celeste into a situation that, if she, you know, had been 100% mentally healthy, she wouldn't have gotten herself into. Um, also, I find it's incredibly insulting to our intelligence that Celeste Beard would say, Tracy Tarleton is crazy, absolutely crazy, and yet Celeste met Tracy Tarleton while both of them were in a mental hospital. Uh-huh. So, Celeste, if Tracy Tarleton is crazy, you're bug fucking nuts too. Because <laughs> y'all met in the mental hospital, and y'all formed a relationship in the mental hospital, and y'all carried on that relationship in the mental hospital, even when the personnel in the mental hospital said it's got to stop. And these are facts that were established at Celeste's trial. So, I mean, I've got a list of the witnesses who were, quote, lying. There's Becky Beard, Stephen Beard's daughter, Donna Goodson, Christina Beard, Tracy Tarleton, Jennifer Beard, Justin Grimm, who was Christina's boyfriend, uh, Brett Spicer with the Travis County Sheriff's Office, Barbara Grant, psychotherapist, who observed the relationship between Celeste Beard and Tracy Tarleton when they were in the hospital, um, right. Honorable Harold Entz, a, a retired judge and friend of Stephen Beard's, Jennifer's boyfriend, Christopher Deuce, 
Um, Patricia Ann Brooks, who was a friend of Tracy's. George Hanley, Stephen Beard's physician and a friend of his. Rick Claw, a co-worker of Tarleton's at Book People. Brandy Witten, another co-worker of Tarleton's. Um, David Coverman, who was Stephen Beard's personal lawyer. C.W. Beard, a cousin of uh, Stephen Beard. Janet Hudnall, a VP with Bank of America. Uh, Amy Cozart, who is a family friend of the Beards. Paul Knight, also a sheriff at Travis County Sheriff's Office. Russell Thompson, Stephen Alexander of the Westlake Fire Department, and Chandra Villegas, a 911 operator. So all of those people are lying. And Celeste is the only one telling the truth. Of course. I mean, doesn't go in contradiction. Everybody thinks you're the problem, then they're the problem. (laughs) Well, no, that's more. That's more like um, if if you have issues with people. If when it's multiple people, it's you're probably the problem. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. You know if. If you have had supervisors in your entire career who are always out to get you and lying on you and fire you for no reason, it's probably was you. No. Um, yeah. So that, it's just like I've I've had friends who have had um, relationship problems, and I've come to realize after years of listening to them you know, complain is that, um, honey, it's not him, it's you. Right. It's really seriously you. So, but, um, so, yeah, but Tracy is, she's taken responsibility. Um, she, she feels and has expressed genuine remorse for what she did. Uh-huh. And I think she showed that remorse by, Stepping up and testifying against Celeste. You know, she could have forced the state to prove everything and rolled the uh-huh. dice, which is what Celeste did. Um, and Celeste does prove that a high priced defense attorney does not always result in an acquittal. And Dina and Jennifer have kind of kept themselves out of the public eye to a degree over the years. They actually do fear Celeste because Celeste did once try to have someone kill Tracy Tarleton. Um, They don't question that she could possibly try to do it again. Um, I mean, come on now. I'm pretty sure I would be the same way. Yeah. So they've lived in hiding. Um, They were heirs because Stephen Beard had adopted them. And they were heirs. And contrary to what Celeste claims, I think she claims that Christina 
and um, Jennifer wanted to frame her for the murder because then they would get more money out of the estate than they had they would have had Celeste inherited her full portion. Right. I don't think that that's necessarily true, necessarily true, and I think one of the issues with the estate was Celeste had what you call usufruct. So aside from cash, the heirs weren't going to get the houses because Celeste got those and she sold them and she took that money. Um, you know, and, and the money and the, the, the cash she was spending. So there was a very real possibility that she would have spent it all and pissed it all away and there would have been nothing left for his three children or Christina and Jennifer when all was said and done because Celeste pissed it away. And I think that was what the, the lawsuit was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she felt entitled to do whatever she wanted with the estate. And, you know, the the bank had the interest of all of the heirs, not just her. So uh, I don't know that, that her being prosecuted necessarily benefited Christina and Jennifer as much as she believes it did. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of his estate was in, in trust because of the tax benefits. So, um, but yeah, it, it's, but she shouldn't have anything from the estate because she is the one who engineered his death. Uh-huh. So, um, and that's not just my opinion, that's the opinion of the jury too. Uh, right. In 2017, Jennifer was shot by her boyfriend who freaked out during some kind of party and got a shotgun out of a closet and started shooting. Uh, He ended up pleading guilty in 2019. Uh, Jennifer was seriously wounded. She had multiple surgeries. She's uh, probably still recovering. And another gentleman who had tried to, the guy down off the ledge he'd gone out on, um, figuratively at least, he was killed. But he was also, basically he put himself between the gun and the other people at the party, which enabled them to escape. Uh And then in 2018, Cole Johnson filed for divorce from Celeste. Uh, He had been married to her since 2000 since 2000, July of 2000, so about 18, 19 years, he had spent a lot of money hiring attorneys and trying to get her out of prison. He had he believed in her 100%, uh, but apparently in 2018, 2019, he filed for divorce, and they were granted a divorce. Okay. So that is where we stand. Um, like I said, she's she can't file. She hasn't filed any additional state post conviction writs. 
Um, she really pretty much can't. And um, she, because she's had her one bite at the apple. And but in the in the various television shows and her various claims, you know, she claims Tracy Tarleton was lying. Tracy was crazy. She has witnesses who prove Tracy was lying. Tracy said she was going to lie. Blah blah blah. These are all things that the jury heard, and the jury did not find them sufficient to raise reasonable doubt. Right. And none of them right. are new. Like I said, they were all presented at the ju- to, to the jury. Um, so that is pretty much Celeste Beard's Johnson's case in a nutshell. And it's weird. Her maiden name was Johnson, and then she married a man named Johnson. And then what were all her what were all her married husbands? Do I know? You have the Wikipedia. Yeah, you have the Wikipedia. Oh, I have the Wikipedia, but honestly, the Wikipedia in this case isn't very um, isn't very detailed because all it talks about oh. is, uh, is uh, Craig and then Stephen. I didn't even know yeah. it was back in the third. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was Henry Wolf. Jimmy Martinez, and then Stephen Beard, and Spencer Cole Johnson. Oh, wait, here we oh, go. Yeah, Craig Bradshaw, yeah. Henry Walsh, Jimmy Martinez, Jimmy Martinez, then Stephen Beard, and Spencer Cole Johnson. So, all right, well, I think that's it. Ooh. Um, I'm certainly interested. Uh, looking forward. Uh, looking forward. Uh, I'm lo- interested in what interested in the way in. Pardon? I'm interested in next week's episode. Next week's episode because of the way in. I'm reading yeah. the uh, next to last sentence in the uh, in the outro, and yeah. I read that like probably five minutes into the show tonight, and I was like, "Uh oh, okay, I'm interested now." <laughs> yep. Um, so is this so, going to be? Yeah. Are we going to do some comparison and contrasting with the other Alfred Glee that we uh, have talked about inextensively? No, probably not, because um, we are being joined by. One of my coworkers, Michelle. Okay. She had seen the staircase on Netflix. That is your assignment for this week. What is it? The staircase and or on next Netflix? weekend. The staircase on Netflix. Okay. Um, and I'm going to watch it as well, although it's probably going to aggravate me. <laughs> and. Uh, she texted me uh, in the wee hours of the morning and asked me, had I ever heard of the case covered in the staircase? Had I talked about it on my show? And mm-hmm. I heard the text come in. I didn't open it or read it. And then the next day, she and I just, you know, talked about it. So I put it on the mm-hmm. schedule and invited her to come on. And so we're going to kind of talk about, kind of compare and contrast the differences between what's presented 
in the staircase. Mm-hmm. And what was presented in the media, because there was a theory that Kathleen Peterson died as a result of an owl attack, um, which okay. would shock Harry Potter fans, um, because uh, owls are such sweet that creatures. Must be, uh, that must be a rare take uh, occurrence. Uh, damn, okay. You know, uh, and it, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week. Um, because I'm I'm going to research how this all came about, and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I invited her to come on and talk with us as a special guest. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be really interesting, and I'm really excited. She and I have had you know kind of discussions, debates in the lunchroom at work, and. Mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to, and because uh, I figured I'd invite her on because she brought the case to me. I mean, I knew about the case. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. She actually brought it to me kind of like an interesting case for us to to cover. Yeah, not only that, but I mean, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm not the only one that watches these these documentaries, and I text you in the middle of it like, hey – have you thought about doing this one yet? <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, I guess we can. Um, uh, you have to remember, you have to stay healthy. Oh yes, absolutely. I'll be. Uh, I'll be drinking plenty of orange juice over the next week. Good. Yeah, emergency. There we go. I actually got some. That stuff actually ain't half bad for it being medicine. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, April 13, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 5, State of North Carolina versus Michael Peterson. We'll talk about the death of Kathleen Peterson and what was meant to look like a tragic fall down the stairs. We'll be joined by Michelle to talk about the documentary, The Staircase, and compare the claims in that work with those presented by Peterson in the courts. We'll also talk about the post-conviction claims that resulted in the granting of a new trial and Peterson's subsequent Alfred plea. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.